All right. Good morning, church. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, as you can see and hear, today we're going to be uh, continuing our uh, quest through the book of Jonah. So today we'll be in Jonah chapter 3. Uh, before we get going, I just I, I wanted to um, just kind of share an announcement. If you're a member here, if you're a part of uh, Rooted regularly, then you're probably a part of our Rooted family group, uh, which is a group on Facebook. We're just kind of update on things going on. And uh, this week I shared uh, just kind of a special announcement, something we've been praying towards, working towards as a church. And I wanted to add a little bit of context to that. Uh, so this week... If, if you've been here, you know that uh, probably really almost from the beginning, probably about 18 months ago, we began a process of wanting to join with a network of churches called the Acts 29 Network. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know there's only 28 verses, uh, 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So the name Acts 29 implies the continuation of God's people, the continuation of the church. And Acts 29 is a network of churches that value theology highly and also uh, by the same token. And multiplication and church planting. And so uh, from the beginning, we, from the day our logo was designed, we did such with the intent. We put the tree there because a tree bears fruit, fruit falls to the ground, and new trees are started. And we want that and continue to pray that that will be the means by which our church grows, that we will be a church that multiplies and takes part in church planting. We believe God desires that multiplication in every place. And specifically, we believe that we live in a city that's in dire need of churches that commit to multiplication. And so because of sharing that value and also sharing the value of having, you know, holding theology to a high degree, we desired to join the, the, there's about, at this point, there's almost 800 Acts 29 churches throughout the world. And so uh, we started that process. Additionally, we wanted a group of experienced, godly men and women who would come around and just speak honest truth to us and would assess and um, be rigid in that and give hard truths where they needed to be. So this last summer, after a year of coursework, Shauna and I went to Kansas City, where we sat in a room that was like looked like a scene from The Apprentice almost, and it was just a um, church planners and uh, couples, and they they spent you know a weekend just kind of drilling us, walking through things. Why they each had a binder with all of our coursework and uh, sermons they had listened to, and all of these things. We left with some recommendations that were just really good and true. Here's some things you need to invest in. Upon our return, we had a family meeting. We talked about those, and I also sent those to all of our members. And so I was just really excited. Uh, I've been working through those conditions. A lot of those just had to do with coaching and things that we would invest in and kind of shore up. And uh, yeah, so this last week we received our letter just that we're a full member of Acts 29. So when you go on that website, we're there. And uh, we're just really proud to be a part of that network. We really value uh, with uh, as in any network, any church body, there are certainly uh, areas of growth to be had. But as a whole, like we value partnering with other churches throughout the world for the purpose of expanding God's kingdom through his church going forward. We desire and pray that this region would be filled with other baby churches that have to spend a few consecutive weeks in a row trying to figure out how to get kids check in, just perfect it. Right? We, 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 want, we want more of that because in the same way that a baby stumbles as they are learning to take steps and we revel in that, so God glorifies in churches that fight the fight to expand his kingdom and to be faithful in the places he's sent them. So part of that tangibly, how that affects us, 
Um, one commitment we've made for this year, uh, which is, is kind of a bold step for a church plant, but we just want to emphasize what we believe in, uh, is 10% of everything that comes into Rooted, of your tithes and offerings, we tithe back into planting churches. And so right now, we're doing that through investing in church planting through the Missouri Baptist Convention, uh, partnering 1% with Acts 29 and helping support other church plants. And then we've also begun to invest in, we're working with a group of local, a small group of local churches who are seeking to partner together for the planting of churches here specifically in southwest Missouri, southeast Kansas. And so um, I just wanted to update you guys on that. I'm really excited about that. It's a it's a big deal. It's something I'm proud to be affiliated with them and uh, for us to just be partnering with others. We, partnership is one of our values that uh, that we hold in high regard. And so we're thankful for the Lord's blessing in that way. Today, we're going to be again in Jonah chapter 3, and I just want to summarize how we got to what Alan read. So last week, we looked at the end of Jonah 1 and all of Jonah 2, and we saw that Jonah, after running from the Lord, he was cast into the sea, facing death. We see in his prayer in chapter 2 that he prayed in the sea that the Lord might rescue him, and the Lord did. The Lord rescued him through him being swallowed up by a giant fish. And at the bottom of the sea, he prayed to the Lord and acknowledged who the Lord rightly was. After running and fleeing the Lord's guidance, Jonah in the belly of the sea acknowledges God's goodness and his faithfulness. And at the end, he declares salvation belongs to the Lord. And declaring his utter state of dependence before God and the fish, by God's grace, released him onto the shore of dry land. And that leads us today to where we are in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is made up of four parts that we're going to talk about today. The Lord calls, Jonah goes, the people respond, and the Lord relents. And so I want to start with and actually spend a pretty good portion of our time today discussing just the first two verses. Verses 1 and 2 say this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I don't want us to miss the implications of that. I want us to just take a moment to revel in the abundance of grace that the Lord showed Jonah. Jonah disobeys the Lord of Lords. The Lord who, at his very word, hurled a storm and then shut it off like a light switch. And the Lord graciously disciplines him and puts him back on the path. This morning, I hope that that truth might be a a hope, might bring hope to all of us who are God's people who stumble Jonah literally did. Like God told him to go to a place, Jonah flees as far as he can in the opposite direction. Jonah did the exact opposite of the will of the Lord. And then because of his guilt in that, because he knew he was running from God, he began to isolate himself. And he goes and he hides farther in the boat and goes to sleep. Jonah did the opposite of what God told him. And yet, God in his graciousness brings him to a place today where Jonah is repentive and God gives him the same word a second time. Christian, I want to remind you this morning, no matter how far you might feel you are from the Lord, no matter how grave your sin, you are never above this passage right here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
You're never past that. You know, the Lord, if when you are his, he will continually, he will always bring you back that you might continue on the path. His discipline is his grace. One of my, my favorites, Eugene Peterson, once said it this way. When we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. You see, for those he loves, even his wrath is loving discipline. This is the discipline of a loving father towards his wayward son. Hebrews 12, 4 through 7 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And then Paul goes on in verse 12 to challenge the church. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. God's wrath, to though even God's wrath to those he loves, is evidence of his abundant grace. As Paul says, what parent would not discipline their child in order that they might have what is best for them, in order that they may be put on the path towards goodness? That just like the child is unaware of that which they ultimately need, of that which is ultimately good, so we are unaware of such in contrast to our loving Father. In essence, Paul's encouragement to the church is, don't sit and despair over the discipline of the Lord. Remember his promises. His promises that say, for those who are his, all things are conforming us to the image of Christ Jesus. All things. Remember his promises. Be encouraged by his love. Repent and acknowledge what he is teaching you and be strengthened by it. This is his, Paul's encouragement to the church is just stop. Like, embrace what he is doing in you. Know who you are in Christ, the price by which you have been bought, and accept that which he is doing in your life as the loving discipline that it is. That it might lift your drooping hands, that you might no longer be about all the things that you value that are worthless, but that you might be used by him for his glory in ways that you don't even understand. The Christian life is a continual combination of peace and struggle. Heaven and earth, death and life, mercy and discipline. For the Christian, many days and moments are filled with hope and with peace. As we gaze upon the Father, we sing to him, we find rest in him. Yet it often seems that there are just as many days of battle. It often seems in our lives like there are more there's more struggling than there is singing Jesus didn't shy away from this truth in Luke 13 24 he says strive to enter by the narrow door for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able the word strive that Jesus uses it means the same thing as the word agonize Jesus challenges challenges his followers to prepare for a life of wrestling and resting, of rejoicing and despairing. 
that we might enter the narrow gate. Jesus is warning his followers, like it's not going to be all all a cup of tea. This isn't going to be the way you thought it was. You thought I was going to come, I was going to conquer all the bad guys, that I was going to, you know, I was going to rule the earth, and that you guys would be up there having high seats, and that day will come, but it's not today. Today, there's going to be a continue a combination of singing and struggling until I return. And that time's going to be intended to point you back to me that you might remember where your hope is and the kingdom to which you belong. But until then, singing and struggling, our life will always be a combination of that. But for those who are his, even that struggle is not worthless. It's not meaningless, but it has incredible meaning. A few weeks back, we talked about 2 Timothy. At 2 Timothy, Paul's nearing the end of his life. And he makes this declaration to his young disciple in 4-7 as he is obviously preparing for his last days. He says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. As we fight this good fight, God disciplines us for his glory and for our good. And he does this in two ways. God teaches us to rest in him alone. This is what Jonah finally did in the belly of the fish. In the belly of the fish, he stopped his hissy fit, and he acknowledged his his dependence on the Lord God Almighty. He finally just stopped and rested in being held in the arms of death. The hissy fit was over. Why is discipline necessary to enter this narrow gate of the kingdom? And how does Jonah teach us as much? Jonah teaches us that it's only through God's loving discipline that we can relent of finding our identity in our money, in our position, in our list of worldly achievements. The Father disciplines us that we might rest in Him and no longer in our sinful tendencies. This is what happened to Jonah. Like Jonah rested in his ability and his righteousness. He had good prestige in his own mind. And he rested in those things. And in the sea, when you're up to your neck and the storm is raging, none of that matters. Like none of of that did him any good in the midst of the sea. In the same way for us, when we are cast through, we are born into an ocean of sin and death. And all of our abilities, all of our talents, all of our titles, all the money we can save up does nothing for you in an ocean of sin and death. Nothing. It can't buy you out of that. There's no way. But God, being rich in mercy, reached down his strong arm that is Jesus, and he plucks us out of that ocean of sin and death only by his strength, only by his power. And in the same way, Jonah was rescued from this sea only by the grace of God revealed in that great fish. Because of Jesus, we run this race with a great hope. As Jonah cast himself into the sea that the sailors might live, so Christ was cast into death so that we might live. That his righteousness might cover us. Because of him, we can fight the good fight with a spirit of peace. Knowing that Christ himself has already won the decisive victory on our behalf. That he is sovereignly working in us to bring us to glory in all things. Don't stop fighting, Christian. Don't wallow in your despair. If you catch yourself in a season of like, man, I just I haven't been with him. I haven't valued the things he wanted. You're not called to sit in despair, but celebrate his loving kindness towards you and come back. 
Maybe many of the things you faced in your life very well may be God gently putting you back on the right path as a loving parent to their child. In the singing and the struggling, God's love for you remains the same. In verses 3 and 4, it says this. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In response to God's grace, Jonah repents of his sin. He acknowledged the Lord's will, and he headed for Nineveh. Note the significance of this transformation. Jonah's awareness of what lies in Nineveh, that being his certain death, has not changed. Okay, we talked about a couple weeks ago, like Nineveh was the most cruel, wicked, terrorist city you could possibly imagine. That truth had not changed. Jonah knows he's going to be humiliated and killed in a very public and excruciating way. That was his fear. And one of his fears in the beginning, that hasn't changed. Yet, his encounter with the Lord has brought him to a place of boldly accepting this. Just like he, you know, he would be a picture of all of the great missionaries that would boldly accept this in all the centuries to come after him. Like the grace of God, when it captivates us, when it's our drive, when the gospel is our motivation in all things, we will walk into a place knowing death is certain because his glory is so much greater. I want to encourage you by, in Jonah's transformation by saying this, like, asking this. Do you ever feel like you're just not quite brave enough to go next door, to meet your neighbors, to, to demonstrate God's love to them? Do you ever feel like I just don't quite have the courage to share the gospel with the friend that the Lord has laid on my heart? Gospel courageousness is birthed from intimacy with the Lord. When we gaze upon his glory regularly through his scripture, all of our fears become increasingly small. So Jonah is able to go with this bold message because he had seen something so tremendous and we get to see that each day in his word. The glory of the gospel makes all of the little things that hold us back, that keep us from obedience to God seem relatively small. Jonah goes into the city, and he goes with a strong message. He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The Lord sends him to the heart of the city with a message of wrath. He sends Jonah to the very middle of the city. He has to walk a day to get into this portion of the city. And he shares this message of wrath with these wicked people. And it's only one sentence, and I know what you're thinking. This seems like a strong case for short sermons. Okay, I get that. But I want to just clarify, I highly doubt this was the entire message, but we can confidently assume it was the central theme of what Jonah sent to God's people. So I will hold to my last day. This is a sermon title. This isn't the whole thing. This is just the title. That's my case. The term overthrown was the same term that was used in regards to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we can assume Nineveh is facing a similar fate, absolute destruction. And I can only imagine, based off what we're going to see in chapter 4, that Jonah declared this message more as a statement of fact 
than an appeal to change. This was a fire and brimstone message that rightly declared that which Nineveh deserved. And Jonah was right to believe they deserved such wrath. But he failed to comprehend the truth that he also deserved such wrath. And that God had put him there for a specific reason to deliver such a word that he was not aware of. You see, Jonah still believed the people of Nineveh were incapable of changing. But a changed heart is never about what a man is capable of. A changed heart is about what God is capable of. Jonah was right to think these wicked people could never change. They could never change. They would never turn from the things that they held to. But Jonah misunderstood what God was capable of doing in them. That ultimately, salvation is not about what I have done. Salvation is about what God used a broken vessel like us to demonstrate his glory in with somebody else. Salvation, the declaration of the gospel, is always about what we believe God can do. That's part of where that courageousness comes from, from being with God. Like, all too often, my failure, my insecurity about sharing the gospel is rooted in, I just don't know if I'm good enough. Like, I don't know if I can make that happen. I don't know if it, and it's a complete misunderstanding of the truth that that's not how it works at all. Like, sharing the good news is birds from my belief that God can do whatever he wills, that salvation belongs to him. That even my stumbling words, my, my statement that I may not feel is rehearsed enough, my testimony that I might feel doesn't always make much of me, if it makes much of him, he can do whatever he wills with it. That God is so powerful and gracious that even the testimony of those who aren't actually saved by him, the New Testament tells us he even uses the word through broken vessels that aren't his and, and uses it to change people. That I know, count, I know numerous people whose salvation has come from those who I would borderline on labeling heretics. But one thing they said was right, and they happened, this person, the God happened to use that to transform them. That God's capable of using whatever he wills to save his people. And so he uses a broken vessel like Jonah, and this is what we see. The people respond. Verses 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast be heard nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I want to just take a minute to walk through the implications of each of these verses. Verse 5, the word, it, it tells us, and the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast. They heard the word of the Lord, and they believed it. Now, I want to be clear, and this is an area of some controversy. We don't exactly know what this passage means in terms of salvation. 
The term the Ninevites used in response to God is the generic Elohim, as opposed to God's covenant name, Yahweh. Whereas in the boat, the sailors actually use the term Yahweh. that indicates to us the salvation, a fear of the Lord through salvation. Some would say that what's described here is a mass revival. Everyone turns from sin and followed the Lord wholeheartedly, that he, lit, he saved this entire city. And their repentance, the fact that they turned from their evil ways, certainly makes a strong case for this. Others would say, other very smart uh, commentators would say that this doesn't really have anything to do with salvation. They don't repent of their sin and word. Uh, they don't uh, offer sacrifices immediately like as the sailors did, nor do they hand over their, we don't see that they handed over their idols or that they begun, like a lot of times in the Old Testament when mass revival happens, circumcision immediately, like those there are things that immediately happen that didn't happen. It doesn't say specifically. So some would say that this was simply about the Lord withholding his wrath because they acknowledged him and turned in obedience to this specific decree. I tend to believe, and this is not, this is just my and what I believe, um, wrestling with this, that the truth is likely a little bit of both. I don't necessarily believe that every person in the city was saved, became a, a devout follower of the Lord. Because spoiler alert, if you spoiler alert, if you read Nahum, you see that 100, 150 years later, things don't go very well for Nineveh. So obviously, uh, there are some who would still produce a generation of evil, and things would go bad for Nineveh not too long after this. Yet I also think that my, many likely did turn to the Lord and aided in this season of peace and repentance. In either case, wherever you fall on that spectrum, the people ceased their violence. There was evident change, repentance, obedience in the city. And it says from the least to the greatest. And they were spared of the Lord's wrath. Either way, miraculous obedience to the Lord breaks out in the city. Verse 6 tells us that this went all the way to the king. That the king undergoes this drastic transformation. He takes off his royal robe and he puts on sackcloth. The sackcloth was a coat of sorts that was typically made from goat's hair. And wearing it was a public display of the rejection of earthly comforts. So he takes off his status as king and he replaces it with sackcloth. The king underwent this drastic transformation And much like that, and then he commands all the people and all the animals to fast and to do the same in verse 7. And then in verse 8, the king institutes radical social change from his position of authority. He commands the people to stop their evil practices. Assyrian violence, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, Assyrian violence was known. It had been condemned by other Hebrew prophets, including Isaiah. The terms evil and violence are also used in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they refer to just these gross social injustices. In verse 9, the king says, Who knows? May God turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Not only does this transformation in the king cause him to declare social change, that people cease their violence, But then he seems to rightly understand his status as guilty. He mourns over his own corruption. He repents by using his power to stop the wickedness that he had formerly overseen. 
You see, like the sackcloth for him, it wasn't just a declaration, but it was also, and it, it symbolized his mourning that the king grieved that which he had been responsible for overseeing. And he rightly acknowledges that their obedience did not earn them mercy. Not only does he declare these things to the people, but the king did seem to have a a different level of understanding. He acknowledges that even our obedience now doesn't mean we're no longer worthy of God's wrath. That he acknowledges to his people, like, we're still worthy of God's wrath, but maybe, it says, who knows, God may turn from his wrath. The king's posture change is completely, and he understands that the Lord of Lord, that salvation truly does belong to the Lord. And then in verse 10, the Lord relents. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When the Lord saw the response of Nineveh to his word, he relented from the disaster he had announced. Now note, this doesn't mean that Jonah spoke a false message when he declared that God would destroy the city in 40 days. But instead, this was exactly in line with what God had said to be true of himself. In Jeremiah 18, 7-8, God says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. God is always true to who he is and who he declares that he is. How miraculous is this change in the city? Note what it was that led to the transformation of this place. It was the word of God spoken. The city didn't change because Jonah went in and started a lot of new nonprofits. They didn't change because new businesses came to town and unemployment went down. They didn't change because the right political candidate finally got elected or because the chamber finally got its act together. The city was transformed because a child of God responded to the Lord's call and spoke his word. The greatest need in Nineveh is the greatest need in Joplin. That the people of God might go where they are sent and share the word of the Lord. God has a word for the people of Joplin, for the people of Webb City, for the people of Carl Junction, of Carthage, wherever you may dwell. And he's called you to take it to them. Mark 16, 15 says, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples. They didn't believe Mary when she proclaimed his resurrection. And he instructs them to go forth sharing the word of God and baptizing believers. This call was not only intended for the disciples in the room, but for all who would follow after them. God lovingly desires to rescue his people, and in his graciousness, he desires to use us for that purpose. Not that he needs us, and I, I, do not, <laughs> I do not need my four-year-old to clean up the house. I certainly, like yesterday, Shauna took mom's day and went out of town for the day to be with a friend. And so I played one on three uh, yesterday, which is good. And it's a good reminder for me of the blessing that she is and how much stronger she is than I. 
And I was trying to get us all together. Mom gave us the text. She's heading home, which meant we had about two hours to clean up all the, the mess we had made. And I thought it would be really good if we all do this together. We'll, like, team up. But that did not make this go more efficiently. It made it, it was, it was tremendous, way worse. I would have been better off to put them somewhere and for me to just do it really quick. God would be, could, could just as easy, he could rescue whoever he wills. He doesn't need us for that. It's not that God's dependent on us. But as a loving father, like, I wanted to do this with my kids. I wanted to include them. I want them to know the value of this. God desires that his children might love the things that he loves. And so he sits us down with him at his workbench of grace, and he invites us, and he teaches us to do the thing, to, to love what he loves, which is his glory, the salvation of his people. God lovingly desires to rescue his people, and he desires to use you. You see, God didn't destroy these people. He didn't desire to destroy Nineveh. He sent Jonah to declare the word of warning, knowing that they would be that knowing that these people would repent and knowing they would be spared for his glory. As we close today and we prepare for Jonah next week, I want you to understand something about this story that'll be more and more apparent next week. Oftentimes the parts of God's story that seem the most extraordinary and that stick out the most aren't always the primary point of the story, but they're pointing to something more subtle, more beautiful, like a painting that has to be stared at to really see the details and the beauty in it. The story of God is often pointing to deeper revelations of his workmanship. Much like the story of the prodigal son is not primarily about the younger brother, but the older, so the story of Jonah It's not just primarily about Nineveh, as it is about Jonah. As it is about, the the miraculous rescue of Nineveh is amazing. But it's also about the loving discipline toward a proud, arrogant, racist, nationalist, self-righteous prophet. Jonah still had a lot going on in his heart. God desires to transform Jonah and to teach Jonah something about who he is. You see, God did something beautiful in Nineveh through Jonah. But Jonah had hoped with all of his heart that he was declaring a death sentence. He had no desire to offer a pardon to these people. He boldly spoke wrath to them, hoping in his heart. He was anxious to see it happen. Jonah did not say, you might be overthrown. He said, you will be overthrown. He enjoyed preaching the wrath of God because he desired God to smite these people. He declared these words not with tears, but with anticipation. Jonah looked upon these people and he wasn't heartbroken by what they were about to endure. He rejoiced in it. He was anxious to see it. Because of their sin and nationality, Jonah thought himself to be better than them. And the scandalous grace of God was incredibly offensive to him as one who thought of himself as more worthy. If we go back to the beginning and you reread Jonah 1, you see Jonah is fearful of his death, but Jonah also acknowledges that he is fearful that the Lord might be merciful to them. Like Jonah, we need the Lord to remove from us every fiber of our being 
that sees ourselves as worthy apart from Jesus. At the end of chapter 3, Jonah is not like, he is not unlike the the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He is standing outside in anger as opposed to celebrating with the people whom the father has redeemed. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, The father welcomes home the wayward son, and the wayward son enters into the house where there's a massive celebration because he has come back. Yet the son who stayed, who thought himself to be faithful, who thought he had earned something from the father, is furious that the father would would lavish these gifts upon the son. He earned it. The older son, I, I deserved it. Those things are mine. He thought he had tried to control the father through his obedience. And at the story of the prodigal son ends with the younger son is in the great celebration. The older son is left outside in his self-righteousness. At the end of chapter 3, Jonah is not unlike this. Jonah's greatest fear was that God would have mercy on these people. And we'll see next week that he feared this even more than death. As much as he feared what would ultimately happen to him, his greater fear was that God would save these people. Jonah still thinks his salvation is something he's worthy of. He still, he still feels, he, he feels he, and he fails to see that the righteous, the grace that God showed Nineveh was the same grace he showed Jonah in the sea, that it was no different. God used Jonah to be a fish for a people who were in equal need of mercy. God God taught Jonah a great deal in the belly of the whale. Jonah rejoiced in the midst of the storm, praising the Lord for his provision. But he still had an abundance to learn. Every disciple of the Lord must come to a place where we can face our flesh, repent, rest in the glory of God, and fight. By God's grace, the younger brother was able to do this. The older was not. Peter was able to do this. Judas was not. All of us, outside of Christ, are equally heading in the same trajectory. I believe, I I continue to, I believe one of the great evidences of spiritual maturity in someone is an ability to speak, to honestly acknowledge who you would be apart from Jesus. To acknowledge what you would look like, what your life would be outside of Christ. And then the contrast of that, to acknowledge that that's only because of God's just uh, just unrelenting grace towards you. It's only because of God's goodness that I'm not that person. I I, I know I have a good idea of, of what I think that person would look like, and it's a despicable It's a despicable person. It's only by God's grace that I'm anybody else. It's only through God's discipline that we're becoming anybody else. This is a process Jonah's going through. Jonah couldn't see that person clearly yet. Jonah can't identify these deep-seated sins in his heart. And that the, the storm he has undergone is a process of God revealing those things to him. Jonah's story of redemption is not over. He had been given a second chance. He would need a third. He would need a fourth. He would need a fifth. He would need a ten thousandth. This is true for us as well. Christian, 
by the grace of God, may we not cease fighting. Like Paul, might we face our last day not with a declaration of worthiness. You're not going to stand before Jesus and have anything to offer up. When when the Lord comes before you and asks, why should you enter into the kingdom of God? You can spend three days talking about all your accomplishments and it's not enough. It's nothing close to perfect holiness. But instead, might we, that day, might we simply point to Jesus. That it's only, it's because, I, I, I can enter the gates of the kingdom. I can enter the narrow gate simply because of him. Because of his righteousness. Because everything I couldn't do, he did. He did it perfectly. And it's only through him that I have such righteousness. It's only through him that I can come before the Father and pray to him. As an adopted son, made so through Christ. And because of that, would my word on that day echo Paul's? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Christian, you need not despair in the midst of the Lord's discipline. The Lord is good and gracious, and much like Jonah, there are things in our heart we're not able to get to on our own. And so God being gracious, he reveals those things to us. But at the same time, in the midst of revealing that which is difficult to bear, he also reveals his goodness in the midst of that. That as I grow in awareness of my sinfulness, I'm convinced the Christian that the growing in spiritual maturity is two things. It's growing in awareness of my sinfulness and just how much it separates me from God. But at the same time, the cross just gets that much bigger. Because if I'm, as I'm growing in that and also growing in awareness of God's goodness, like what depths did God go to to rescue me? That my growing in awareness of my sinfulness is at the same time growing me in my awareness of just how magnificent God's grace really is. And so our stumbling, our shortcomings, our sin, our moments of failure... By God's grace, would those give us an even bigger picture of just how substantial the sacrifice God offered is? The cross was not unnecessary. My sin really was worth such a cost. And in God's grace, would he remind us of that and teach us that in the moments when the storm feels unrelenting? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your unrelenting mercy. All of us, like uh, like Jonah, have ran from you at some point. And you are continually gracious to call us back. God, thank you for being a loving father. God, I pray that as a father, I might... Reflect the mercy, grace that you've shown me. As a son, Lord, I pray that I might see discipline as what it is. That I might welcome it. That I might invite it. That I might be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, would this be true of us all? Lord, in the days of singing and in the days of struggling would the gospel remain the same in our hearts? Holy Spirit, we need you for this to be true. We acknowledge we're not capable of such things outside of you. We are fully, wholly dependent on you. Lord, we acknowledge we were all 
stuck in the middle of a sea where we could not rescue ourselves. And it's only through your grace that we were rescued. And it's only by your grace that we might repent and walk faithfully. Lord, would you uh, bestow upon these people such grace, Holy Spirit, would you just transform our hearts that we might see you as you are and turn to you and offer our lives before you. You're worthy of all we have, Lord. There is no other meaning. There is no other purpose that is greater than you. Nothing. But would all of our lives be used simply to, to just to make much of you? Lord, if there are any here in this place who don't, who don't know that, who are still just flapping their arms in the midst of the raging sea, God, I ask you to rescue them, please, that you might be glorified. I pray that you would rescue them and we might make much of it, that you might receive the glory that you deserve, that many might hear and know. Lord, for those who are in this room who are yours, embolden us to be courageous and to take the word that you've given us to the places that you've called us. That you might receive glory in those places. 